This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors from Michigan politics and government. So much going on this week as usual, but we're going to get right into it on a subject I don't think we've ever discussed on this program, but we sure should have, and we certainly should now, and that is sports betting. And we are very lucky to have on the line with us Rob Russell, who is a gaming analyst with Regulatory Management Counselors. You could call it RMC Legal. And he knows just about everything there is to know on this subject. So, Rob Russell, welcome to the Political Insider. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me. How do you see things uh, going on uh, forward with sports betting legalized in Michigan just in time for Super Bowl Sunday? Uh, what are you seeing so far in Michigan? Okay. Yes, it's a, a brave new world for Michigan consumers. Um, the State Gaming Control Board, which oversees uh, the uh, gaming interest in the state, worked very diligently in 2020 to, to get to a point of, of launching 10 operators on January 22nd that uh, have the ability to offer consumers a sports wagering option, and then a few days later added two additional providers uh, so consumers have the option, as they, they prepare for the Super Bowl, to, to look at 12 different operators. Well, what have you seen so far? Are there any numbers or figures, dollar signs or whatever, on the amount being bet? Uh, can you tell yet? The state has not released figures uh, for January uh, as of yet. Um, they likely will do so at some point in the middle of the month. Uh, however... Uh, based upon advertising uh, projections and various industry reports, the Michigan market appears to be performing extremely strong. Well, how much of this betting is in person? Maybe that's a totally naive question. How much is online? How much in casinos? How much elsewhere? Uh, well, the total state uh, market share uh, currently between the tribal casinos and the Detroit casinos is well over uh, $2 billion annually. Uh, what we will see in the online space, uh, projections are anywhere from an additional 500 to 700 million in in wagers uh, or revenue made based off of wagers, and and a significant amount of that then gets returned to the state in taxes. Do you think that most of the new betting on sports is going to come out of betting that would otherwise go into other forms of legalized gambling, or is it going to be pretty much new? Betters, new revenue coming in, like you said, two billion, and you think it might get up to, if I heard you correctly, two and a half billion, counting sports. Right. I I think it is incremental revenue to the to the marketplace. It's a different wagering experience. It's a different customer. And Michigan was not the first state to to enter the online space. So if we look at New Jersey and Pennsylvania and elsewhere, um, it's very additive. To the marketplace, and it will help support the bricks and mortar industry for both tribes and commercial casinos. Is sports betting going to be a larger part of gaming in Michigan than anybody imagined before this legislation got approved and signed by Governor Whitmer? 
well, I think there, you know, gaming is occurring either legally or illegally in the state. I think the benefit here is there's going to be a transition from uh, these offshore um, sites where consumers are either not being properly uh, compensated and it's a risky environment to a legal environment and taxed environment. So I think it's a win-win for the state, Bill. How much revenue do you think might come into the state treasury if, let's say, it's uh, half a billion dollars in a year being bet on sports in Michigan? Well, there's two pieces. There's online sports and online wagering, uh, Bill. So on the online sports, the, the state's pre- predicting $20 million additional dollars to the school aid fund in a first aid, uh, excuse me, first responder fund as well as an additional $40 million to the, uh, those two funds from iGaming, which includes the ability to play slots, roulette, and other table games online. So $60 million altogether, you think, maybe? That, that's the projection. I feel it's extremely low based on the market. This past 12 months has taught many people how to use the Internet that were not uh, avid uh, um, Internet uh, uh, Persons and those include the, the adult population that are now using Zoom several times a week to talk to their grandchildren. So I think it's a, a wonderful opportunity uh, for the state. It's going to create tremendous tax revenue. By the way, is there any difference between gambling and gaming, really? <laughs> it, it's just syntax. <laughs> gaming sounds a little better, maybe, huh? Well, I think as we have uh, with all aspects of society, uh, found to embrace certain forms of entertainment. Everything needs to be done in moderation, Bill. And the online gaming space has a great number of tools for individuals to ensure they're being responsible, uh, that they uh, are not uh, wagering more than their limits or spending more time than they need to be. How is Michigan set up uh, on sports betting compared to other states? You mentioned some other states that have it. I mean, what is our model? How are we different? Are we better, not as good? Are there things that are going to have to be tweaked going forward in the law? Well, I think that the state uh, gaming control board was a great advocate uh, to ensuring a, a sound regulatory system. And the state legislature put in place a moderate tax rate, which permits the industry to operate in a very competitive landscape with what currently is the illegal sports wagering market. The goal is to bring, um, you know, business into a regulated environment. So Michigan did it right by setting a reasonable tax rate. How much do you estimate has been bet on sports illegally before this new law took effect? And going forward with sports betting now being legal and the revenue coming in the way you described, how much is the illegal market going to shrink? I think we're going to see a significant amount of the illegal or uh, the uh, offshore market come into the regulated space. The exact percentage I don't have for you, Bill, but I will tell you, um, those that have an option to play uh, online should really look at the, the, the regulated and fair marketplace that's governed by the state. Well, what else would you say overall? Because you know this backwards and forwards, this whole industry and You've watched all the agitation in the legislature over the years to try and get a bill through and signed by a governor to allow this in Michigan. How do you look at what's happened and what may happen in the future? Well, I think, you know, the leadership of the Gaming Control Board by Director Calm 
as well as some of the senior staff, David Murley, um, and the professionals that run the casinos. You know, we're talking uh, some of the top brands in the in the marketplace have come to the state of Michigan, including Wynn Resorts. Uh, we also have Bet Rivers and a number of others. But I think you're going to see a, a dynamic marketplace, a regulated market marketplace, and one that will uh, be a model for other states to look at. Let's say five years from now, what would be your guesstimate? I, I know you can only project or predict uh, of w- what percentage of all the legalized gambling in Michigan is going to be sports gambling. What percentage? Let's say in five years. Okay. Well, sports sports wagering and sports gambling um, will will be a, a portion. But understand, the real revenue generator for the state is the, the, the traditional casino games, whether they're played in a casino or they're played online. So um, I would say if we, we took it, maybe it's a 5 to 7% of the total marketplace, um, and, and that's going to help fund the bricks-and-mortar industry. But it's really the online slots, the online games, and then those, the, the incentive to bring that player to it, the, the casino. You can't replace a casino experience, although maybe in COVID you think you can, but once we get to a new new world, people want to get back and inter- interact with their friends, and that'll support the jobs and the capital infrastructure that's that's very uh, important to the state. Okay, Rob Russell, you've given us a great overview of sports betting in Michigan. Kicked off just about two weeks ago. We got Super Bowl Sunday coming up. It'll be interesting to see what the figures are on that. Thank you so much. Rob Russell, who is gaming analyst for RMC Legal. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with another subject and another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have a guest who surely must be celebrating right now. He is Mark Ewell, and he is executive director of the Michigan High School Athletic Association, and he just got the news from Governor Gretchen Whitmer that finally, at long last, she has lifted her foot off the neck of high school sports and allowed them to open up earlier than February 21st, uh, in fact, I think as early as Monday. So, Mark Ewell, welcome to the Political Insider, and uh, how is this going to work? Well, uh, thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. Uh, yeah, we're incredibly excited. Um, you know, we're thankful to both Governor Whitmer and uh, uh, HHS Director Hertel for, um, you know, really the, the change, of course, as it uh, relates to sports and uh, the latest emergency order. So, uh, we had four winter contact sports that were really in limbo. It was basketball, ice hockey, competitive cheer, and wrestling. So all four of those will uh, be able to have full-blown practices next week. Um, our basketball and hockey teams can, be, uh, can begin competing early next week. They have to be masked at all times. That, that uh, is part of the order. And then with our uh, competitive cheerleaders and wrestlers to where um, you know, they haven't had any in wrestling, any physical contact in practice yet. Our competitive cheerleaders to where you've got, you know, young women flying in the air and having to, you know, land their stunts and, and to be able to catch teammates. They're going to need a handful of days to get up to speed as well. Um, so they're going to start the end of next week. The one note, I think, for your listeners is wrestling is the one sport that, that uh, antigen 
uh, COVID testing is going to be required. We uh, use these rapid tests that were provided to us by MDHHS to our schools at no charge, so that's been a, a good part of the partnership. We used those tests back in January as we were able to finish up our three fall sports of football, volleyball, and girls swimming and diving. So starting the end of next week, uh, a wrestler, so on either the day before or the day of a meet, will need to uh, complete a, uh, a, a rapid test. Obviously has to be negative, and then they're going to be able to compete. Um, so certainly uh, some details and logistics for our schools, but I think all of us can step back and you can look at that group of winter sports. And the one that we've, we've had very unique concerns about for months has been wrestling, and it just makes some good common sense uh, that there is a testing component with our wrestlers. Yeah, Mark, I, I want to ask you a question that I don't think you really get to explain very well to a lot of lay listeners, people not expert in this issue, and that is contact versus non-contact sports. Now, this is supposed to be for contact sports. Now, I can understand wrestling is the ultimate contact sport. Hockey, you can say, even cheerleading, you know, catching teammates and so forth. But, you know, basketball is supposed to be a non-contact sport. We all know it really isn't because you can foul somebody and it's called, but it's a non-contact sport. I mean, are basketball players supposed to wear masks? How can that happen? So that that's another big part of the challenge. Um, we're still uh, in the process of getting more guidance from MDHHS. It, in the order, it talks about there are two options. It's either that you participate at all times with a mask on, and, you know, our teams, as they've been practicing and doing their conditioning, they've been conditioning with masks. Our fall sports, uh, masks were required. So um, while it certainly is, is a challenge and not ideal, um, a lot of kids have, have made the, the modifications, and we've just kind of figured that out. But in the order, it talks that you're either masked or um, our hockey and basketball teams would have the option of opting into the testing program to where, again, on the day of answered yet, is this an all-or-nothing thing? Could you have, say, a basketball team of 12 kids, and if six kids opt in to test and they're able to play without a mask, how does that look then when there's six teammates who aren't testing, they're out there playing with a mask? Uh, the two schools playing each other. What if one school's a test school, the other school is a mask school? Um, is that really a fair and, and level playing field? So, again, the order just came out yesterday. That's the first time that we saw it. And, uh, you know, we'll work uh, here with HHS over the, over the weekend to try and get answers to that. But, Bill, that is a big concern that we hear uh, from, and we've heard that since August. You know, our soccer kids, yeah, you're outdoors, but, you know, soccer, similar to basketball, high cardiovascular load, you know, there is some physical contact there. And, you know, for a kid to have run up and down a 110-yard um, soccer field all fall with a mask on, that was a challenge. And um, that challenge really isn't much different uh, on, uh, on the basketball floor inside a gym. Well, I want to make sure I understand. You're saying that the decision on whether to be tested or to wear a mask is done by the individual player? It's not made by the coach or the school? I uh, think... It would be made by one of those three, Bill, and we're not sure exactly how that's going to work yet. Um, you know, the, the order kind of gave the either or. You either play in a mask 
or you go the testing route, but the details, um, you know, we ask the question, well, you know, can basketball, can it be different for some basketball schools, or does uh, Health and Human Services want to do the whole thing? And, and again, we're grateful for the opportunity, but I think, you know, kind of the conundrum we're in today um, kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, we're able to communicate and share information, but when it comes to decisions, um, we're not in the room. So um, when it really comes to the, the nuts and bolts of how is this actually going to work, how is this going to be executed, you know, all we can do is take uh, whatever the most recent order is, and then we kind of go into scramble mode um, to figure out a way to get this done because, uh, you know, you could even make the argument, Bill, that even though we're going to be testing wrestlers and during meets, um, a wrestler can compete without a mask on. That makes sense. But yet those same wrestlers during practice sessions, um, they have to have a mask on the whole time. So, um, you know, there, there's some conflicts within that. But again, we're, we're uh, you know, working with HHS in a spirit of cooperation and hopefully we can um, you know, settle on some things that uh, make uh, good medical sense as well as uh, good common sense. We're talking to Mark Yule. He's the executive director of the Michigan High School Athletic Association. Mark Yule, let me ask you, are you concerned that the governor may pull the rug out from under you again, that she may rescind her edict allowing you to keep playing indoor contact sports? You know, the, the pit I've had in my stomach since August has always just been the uncertainty of COVID. You know, as we worked through our fall sports, we knew that we were going to have positive cases. We knew that we were going to have some teams that would have to pause or delay for a while. Um, so you don't know what the future holds, especially during this pandemic. What does give me a great deal of optimism is our three geographic neighbors, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Ohio, have all been playing winter contact sports since early November. Um, you know, the COVID data uh, in all four of our states back in early November was, was in a really critical uh, situation. Well, now two and a half months later, you know, Michigan, our cases and our positive test rate have dramatically decreased. But those same rates have gone down in all three of those states that were playing sports the whole time as well. So what that tells me is obviously um, those three states were able to do it and do it safely. I'm in touch with those colleagues on an almost daily basis, and I think uh, we've learned some lessons that's worked well in those states to just try and mitigate as much risk as possible but uh, to do that. So if decisions are going to be made based on the numbers, we're going to do everything we can to make uh, those numbers look look as good as possible. Okay, Mark, you've given us a tremendously precise uh, overview of high school sports going forward. Good news. Let's hope it keeps up all the way through the spring into spring sports. Mark, you'll executive director of the Michigan High School Athletic Association. Thanks for being our guest. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with still another guest on another topic. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with a fascinating guest on the line and a very interesting and unusual subject. He is Richard McClellan who is no stranger to anybody who follows Michigan politics and government or knows anything about it or participates in it. Richard McClellan, thanks for being our guest. Happy to be here. Richard McClellan uh, has 
a list of accomplishments as long as your arm and then some uh, in subjects like elections, campaign finance, passage of legislation, corporate and business leadership. Uh, professionally, he's a partner, uh, has been in the law firm Dykema Gossett. He's heavily involved in supporting economic development in Africa. I could go on and on, but uh, Richard received his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1964 from Michigan State University, Honors College with a degree in advertising. He received his law degree from the University of Michigan Law School in 1967. And uh, he has made an interesting and generous bequest to his undergraduate alma mater, Michigan State University. And I'd just like you, Richard, to explain what that is. Well, I'm 78 years old, so, and I don't have any kids, so I started to think what I was going to do with the money I've built up over the years. So what I was uh, approached by the retiring dean of the law school at Michigan State, uh, trying to hit me up for money <laughs> before she left uh, office, which is what the, a dean's job is, to squeeze money out of people. I said, well, do you have a program related to freedom of speech? She said, well, actually we do. Uh, They have a free expression uh, program at the law school. So I initially pledged $500,000 to fund a free expression online library. That led to other, I said, well, what more can I do? in the area of freedom of expression, because I think freedom of expression is so important to our our country, but it's under attack in a way it really hasn't been in the past, particularly from the universities, that rather than being promotion of, of free expression of ideas, have become, in some cases, really uh, trying to shut down speech. So I ended up uh, giving another $2 million to create the John Engler Distinguished Chair in Freedom of Expression at MSU. And I gave another half a million to the College of Communications Arts in order to fund research fellowships in the area of freedom of expression. So that it can, uh, the new chair in freedom of expression would have money to hire students, graduate students, to do research. That's a quick summary of what I've done. So I, I feel I've I've uh, given away most of my money, and I've been able to uh, contribute to something that I think is an ongoing uh, issue that is really part of our society that we need to defend. Well, that is an incredibly generous gift. I'd like to ask you, why did you choose to name it after John Engler, our former governor and former interim president of Michigan State University, rather than yourself or some other name? Uh, yeah, a lot of people ask me that, and uh, my answer is, I'm nobody. And, uh, you know, although you kind of puffed me up there a little bit, but... <laughs> really, uh, uh, 
years from now, nobody will know who Richard McClellan is. But John Engler is a former governor of Michigan, 12 years as governor. He and I are very close, and uh, he was acting president at the time before he is rather short tenure there. Uh, and so I just felt that John deserved uh, uh, recognition in something like this rather than me. Okay, let me ask you, why not the University of Michigan Law School? Well, I can tell you why. Uh, the uh, University of Michigan, while it's a great law school and a great university, at the time I was doing this, <clears throat> decided to create these bias response teams uh, that were designed to suppress speech that was disapproved by the university. They deny it, but in fact, that's what it was. It was to create... Uh, spies on campus to report uh, any speech that might be seen to be as uh, promoting bias. And that set me off, and I said, well, if that's the way they're going to be, I'm not going to give anything to the University of Michigan. And I doubled up on my contribution to MSU. Wow. Uh, what about... Uh Speech on campus at Ann Arbor and East Lansing in general. I mean, independent of the way maybe the administrations of the two universities have handled it. Um, what what are some examples of dangers, and why do you think that Michigan State promises to be able to use your money better than the University of Michigan? Well, the truth is, I don't. That's the risk of being a donor a big university. Uh, they could get the Board of Trustees to suddenly become, we're going to be the politically correct university, and no matter what I've contributed, you could see a lot of efforts to suppress free speech on even MSU campus. There have been a few uh, examples. I'll give you one example. When Louiana Simon was president, uh, there was a uh, Speaker, one of these right-wing neo-fascist speakers, first she canceled it, said that they couldn't do it, it'd take too much money to provide security. And then she came back and she made, she said, no, she thought about it. She determined that a public university is a public space. They, we, The university can't be in the business of uh, canceling speakers. And... Uh, when she did that, I was really uh, proud of her, and I thought she she did absolutely the right thing. And, and I'm hoping with my contribution and with a chair who's focused on this, that the whole of the university will uh, continue uh, to be supportive of free speech. You can't have a public university that limits speech politically and... Uh, we did have we did have the dean of the law school. I thought was uh, uh, suggesting some of these restrictions, and I complained about it when I was on the board. But these are important issues that are not going to go away. I think Michigan State's pretty uh, open. Uh, it should always be um, that way. 
back 50 years ago when I was in college, uh, the, the students, uh, socialists, young socialists, wanted to bring the communists on campus. John Hanna, I, uh, John Hanna, the president of the university, banned them. He said, we're not going to allow camp, uh, communists on campus. So I called him up and I said, well, if, if, if you're not going to let us be on campus, I'm going to let us, I'm going to let the socialist club put it on my backyard of my fraternity, and we had a couple thousand people show up. If John and Hannah had just left, let the socialists have their meeting in the union, they probably would have had 20 people show up. <laughs> Instead, by, by making a big thing of canceling speech, you make speech more important. Uh, fortunately, Michigan State, I think, has a not unblemished, but a pretty good record of supporting uh, a diversity of speech. Okay, well, listen, now, we're going to have we're going to have to take a break here, but we're going to come back with Richard McClellan and talk a little bit more about it. Believe me, this guy has a resume the likes of which you've never seen. Uh, he's been too modest. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Richard McClellan, who is a prominent lawyer in Lansing and uh, really has an incredible list of accomplishments during his career. He's way too modest. Uh, He accused me of puffing him up. In my introduction of him in the last segment, which I did not, I really didn't even go into detail. I'm going to do that a little bit. He began his professional career as an administrative assistant to Michigan Governor Phil Milliken and as acting director of the Michigan Office of Drug Abuse. President Gerald Ford appointed him as an advisor to the Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration as a member of of the National Advisory Food and Drug Committee of the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. In 1990, he served as transition director to then-Michigan Governor-elect John Engler. In 2007, he was selected by the Secretary of Defense to participate in a tour of the United States Pacific Command. He's been chair of a number of state boards and commissions, and a member of others. He's been chair of the Michigan Film Advisory Commission, chair of the Michigan Corrections Commission, designated as an emergency interim successor to the governor from 1991 to 2002. He's been acting director of the Michigan Office of Drug Abuse. When it comes to higher education, and that's what we've been talking about today, uh, Richard is an adjunct Associate Professor at Michigan State University College of Communication, Arts, and Sciences. He formerly served as Adjunct Professor of International Studies at MSU. He was a member of the board of the Imagine Fund, which is a scholarship-granting organization to ensure access and expand equal opportunity to higher education for students based on their race, color, sex, ethnicity, national origin, and or cultural characteristics. At the request of Michigan Governor John Engler, Richard McClellan helped establish and served as president of the Michigan Japan Foundation, 
which was established to provide private support for the Japan Center for Michigan Universities, a program established in Japan by Michigan's 15 public universities. He was also, back in the spring of 2010, the commencement speaker for the Michigan State University College of Law. You know, that's only about a third of what I could rattle off about Richard McClellan. Uh, You go to Wikipedia and uh, look up Richard McClellan, spelled M-little-C, capital L-E-L-L-A-N, Lansing, Michigan, and boy, you're going to get an eyeful. But Richard, let me ask you, uh, when you gave this gift or before you gave it, when you were contemplating giving it, did you look around the country? Is there anything like this that's been done by other people at other universities to try to combat the threats to free speech on campus across America? Yeah, what I found out was that uh, from the uh, professor at MSU Law School that I've been working with is that there are programs around the country at universities, generally in the journalism department, uh, and um, and there are national organizations of journalism teachers that uh, that focus, and they're pretty good at focusing on freedom of speech. So, so I didn't do any research. I just, uh, but but I've learned since then that there that there is a lot of this going on. Thank God, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you you say you gave, uh, as I understand it, half a million dollars to the uh, communications. Um, Department of Michigan State, I understand that. Now, the $2 million part of it, what exactly, again, if you could just go over that a little bit again, what is that hopefully going to be used for? And as you say, you're a little apprehensive about whether, you know, some future administration might do something with the money that you didn't intend. Well, the $2 million is a very is very simple. It's to, and, and for an endowed share. An endowed chair allows the university to go out and recruit, hopefully, somebody of high caliber who will come to the university uh, and will uh, be a chair in freedom of expression. So he or she will be teaching, will be lecturing, will be incurring, uh, going to other things. We don't know exactly what they'll do, but having an endowed uh, position uh, gives a voice to this freedom of expression in an institutional way at the university, and I hope over a long term it's intended to, to continue on. So that's what I did. Well, they could bring in guest speakers, too, couldn't they? I suspect that's partly what they'll do. I, uh, and that's what I'm, I'm counting on uh, the provost, the uh, law school, and the uh, uh, Quello Center at the College of Communications, Arts, and Sciences. I continue to serve on the Quello Center board, which is the Quello Center for Telecommunications Law and Policy, uh, named after a former FCC chairman and a former WJR, I think, general manager. Yeah. Uh, Yes. He was a very well-known figure back in the day. And I knew him for a couple of years before he died, but I've been on his this Quello Center board for a long time. Um, is it possible that as part-
part of this endowed chair, I mean, there would be a course or a seminar or something or maybe more than one set up for students to take a course or a seminar in the subject of freedom of expression? Uh, Or is it just you've got an endowed chair, but is this just kind of a free-ranging professor who, you know, gets up and gets talks every once in a while or brings in guest speakers and you have special events? What do you think? Well, the, the, the document that I signed with the university said that this chair will, among other things, will, when he or she comes to the university, they will teach courses. Uh, um, and, and I suspect, and I'm hoping, you know, if somebody takes the position of John Engler Chair for Freedom of Expression, you assume that he or she, that's their, they're similarly committed to the same ideas that I've been and will want to have seminars, have courses, have and help maintain an institutional commitment to freedom of expression and free speech at the university and throughout society. Do you uh, think that there's going to be an attempt by the universities is another way of getting at the same question I've asked before to, you know, strike some balance, try and come up with maybe debates or something between people who say uh, we can't allow freedom of expression to get out of control. There are certain things that can't be talked about on campus. That would be one side. And the other would be, hey, if you can't talk freely on a university campus about a subject no matter what it is, where the heck can you? Well, I I would be in favor of that, and I would expect that's the kind of thing that you expect from a university, and and you would want some debate. Uh, I will tell you that the debates will probably, at this point, be around things like gender, uh, those kinds of things. Um, they seem to get people more intense than almost anything. And uh, I could see a a debate where the Nasser victims group or something uh, wants to uh, suppress speech that they disapprove of. So I could see that. And I hope hope we have it. Just like I supported a communist speaking on campus. Uh, Yeah, I'm a Republican. But uh, as I told the president of the university, I was a student back then, but I should have the right to hear anybody. I went to a speech by Malcolm X on the campus at the time, and uh, I was kind of surprised. I had never been. I'd never heard a uh, person who attacked white people the way he did. So it was a learning experience. Absolutely. Speaking of Michigan State University broadly, I mean, it has been rocked in the past few years by the Larry Nassar uh, scandal, as you know, you just mentioned it. Uh, Then we get coronavirus, but we've running out of time. But just generally speaking, what what does the future look like? You think Michigan State is back on track? Yes, I think it's back on track, but it's got a long way to go. And we don't know what's going to happen to public universities. Uh, There may be too many of them. Uh, The new president, I think, is uh, so far, doing the right thing. Okay, listen, uh, we could talk about this forever, but you've done a great thing. Uh, congratulations to you, 
You are really to be commended for this bequest to Michigan State University. Richard McClellan, a longtime fixture of Michigan politics and government, thanks for being our guest. Thank you, Bill. We'll be back next week with You Can Count On It, Bill Moore. Bill Moore.